Hi friends, welcome to season four. I'm beyond excited to be back. I'm your host, Chalen, and today is September 5th. And if it's Sunday, then this is the Delve. After a few months off, we are back with season four. Thank you all so much for being such passionate listeners across 23 countries. I'm eternally grateful and I'm sure the entire Delve team uh, as well. We start this season with one of the most intense and complex stories of 2021. We start off in Afghanistan. We record this episode on August 31st, the last day of the war in Afghanistan. Almost 20 years after the September 11th attacks, which kicked off an entire generation of war. Just recently, we've seen a a deadly suicide bombing at the Kabul airport that left more than 182 people dead, including 13 members of the U.S. military. And as the evacuation began to wind down, more than 117,000 people have been airlifted out of Afghanistan. Truly a wonder. And yet, as some are still waiting... Many are going to attempt to cross overland. Walls have been built at borders in Greece to block refugees' access to Europe. This has quickly turned into a humanitarian disaster. I want to be clear. President Joseph R. Biden has made the right call to end the war. President Biden did not start this war, and even in his time as vice president, he was an advocate for ending the war. And though the exit has been chaotic, deadly, and tragic, Any day longer we occupied Afghanistan would be a grave mistake. The 20-year war in Afghanistan was started with the pretext of revenge for the September 11th attacks, liberating the Afghani people from Taliban oppression, and establishing a Western-style democracy. 66,000 Afghan military and police have died in this war. 47,000 Afghan civilians. More than 3,500 U.S. and NATO allies and 51,000 Taliban fighters. 5.9 million Afghanis have fled the war or been internally displaced. And it took just one week from the announcement of our withdrawal for the Taliban to seize the seats of power from the capital, Kabul, once again. The United States leaves Afghanistan similar to as we invaded, once again, under Taliban rule. But as pediatrician-turned-novelist Nadia Hashimi who I interviewed for this episode, has said, Afghans face life without oxygen. Our hearts and minds are with the families of U.S. service members, NATO allies, and with all of the Afghani families who lost family members and livelihoods in this war. May their memories be a blessing. In this episode, I was honored to have a conversation with a truly remarkable woman who advocates for peace and justice in Afghanistan. Today, I speak with first-generation Afghan-American doctor, writer, mom, advocate, and all-around hero, Dr. Nadia Hashimi. I hope that this interview gives you a glimpse into an often unheard perspective and is a call to action so that we can be better towards our fellow humans. Hey, Nadia, how are you? Thank you for coming on to the Dell. I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I am... um, Really, really grateful. Uh, you know, we were talking a little bit about this uh, before we start recording, and I want you know our listeners to know a little bit about you and and in your story. 
I am an Afghan American. My parents came over uh, as economic immigrants in the early part of the 70s. And I ended up growing up in the New York, New Jersey area, went to medical school, became a pediatrician, and have been sort of in the space of working with the Afghan community in that area around me during this time when I was a student into my training, and then moved down here. So right now, I have been in a position where I flexed from a pediatrician to jumping off into writing. And so I write novels, um, which has taken me deep into the history of Afghanistan, into the problems, the situations, the struggles of Afghan families, and most particularly Afghan women. I think what is really important about these stories to me is how it affects actual people. And jumping off of the fiction, we actually impact people by becoming advocates. And so I am now a member of the U.S. Afghan Women's Council of Afghan American Foundation and have found myself in a space where I'm bringing all of these different pieces together uh, to highlight not just the struggles of the Afghan people, but also the grit and then some of the situations where our policies have really caused sometimes more harm than good. And I guess right now, which of your books would probably be the most important for our audience to pick up right now in this moment? You know, it's really hard to say. And I think that one of my books I wrote about the struggles of uh, refugees. And when I'm thinking about the thousands of people that we have landing not too far from me at Dulles, you know, people that we are now organizing for, um, these refugees who've landed on our shores, I'm thinking of that story. When I'm thinking about what might be in the future for Afghan girls, then my first novel is one that really talks about that struggle about girls who are forced out of schools and forced out of education. And now, you know, when we think about what the United States' relationship has been with Afghanistan, what it will be going in the future, then then my most recent novel, again, talks about that going back to the 70s. So I really don't know. And that's that's the thing with Afghanistan is that everything is timely. Everything is relevant. This actually flows really nicely into my next question. Can you paint a world-by-world comparison of what Afghanistan looks like under the control of the Taliban versus under U.S. occupation? You know, one thing about Afghanistan is that geographically it's very diverse. Uh, That has been one of the challenges just historically and and different nations kind of going in there with, uh, with different missions and intentions. During the period of time where the United States has been in Afghanistan, there's been a variable amount of progress There's been a lot of progress in general, but it has been variable. Progress always happens to the greatest extent in cities. And so in the cities in Afghanistan, you will see many more girls going to school, women are graduating from universities, women involved in the workforce, in government, journalism. But when you take a look at what's going to happen now under this new Taliban 2.0 or whatever it is, we're not really sure. There are a lot of questions. And even under the Taliban, I don't know if w- their behavior and their ideology and their rules are going to be the same in the cities, and particularly in Kabul, where they know that the world's eyes are still on them for the time being, versus in the provinces where there may not be as much from the top control over what's happening. And we really don't even know if the leadership of the Taliban are that connected to the people who are on the ground and carrying out you know, some of these orders. Right, I read that there is a bit of a disconnect potentially there, that the vast majority of the citizens of the people of Afghanistan do not 
want the Taliban to return to power. If people have been paying attention, there have been widespread protests. Before the Taliban officially took over, there were widespread protests across the country where people came out onto their balconies, onto the streets, they marched, right. they did everything. The trouble with Afghanistan is not that you know the people have been, um, they just really had a, a tough choice. On the one hand, they've got a government with what we know to be a very a corruption-plagued government in Afghanistan. And so a lot of the people have not felt like their government has done them any justice, has not looked out for them. They have also had the U.S.'s presence there, which while it did a lot of good, it also caused a lot of tensions to flare. And a lot of the corruption that happened within the Afghan government was enabled, in part at least, by having so much money flow into the country without a lot of oversight or structure. And then so much of it, honestly, the vast majority of the money fluttering right back out of the country into the hands of companies that are based in the U.S. who are contracted to do work in Afghanistan. And then they've got the Taliban. And so I really feel like the Afghan people have been stuck in this, you know, not just between a rock and a hard place. I mean, it's between mm -hmm. like three rocks and three hard places and trying to figure out, you know, which is the best option for them. And so I don't think that the Taliban at all represent the wishes of the vast majority of the Afghan people, but they have not had the best options. Last week, you tweeted, the U.S. is honoring all promises made, dot, dot, dot to the Taliban. There were a lot of conditions to handing, you know, power over. It was just so abrupt, like, okay, here you go, here's your country, boom. And the US is out, they're not, you know, kind of mandating any type of peace talks. That's exactly right, Shailen. I mean, I think, you know, I, I was really curious, as were so many others, I couldn't believe that the United States was sitting down to literally negotiate with terrorists after, you know, we, we always talk about how we don't negotiate with terrorists. Yeah, that's like the huge thing. <laughs> we do it in these five-star hotels, apparently, in, in Doha. <laughs> so... We sat down, the United States sent a very problematic envoy with a troubled history. They sent Zalmay Khalilzad, who basically sat down with these buddies of his, and they hammered out after, you know, how many months of meetings and meetings and meetings, they hammered out four pages of the most fluff I've ever seen. You know, in this country where we have so many lawyers, I cannot imagine anyone actually signing on to that deal. There, are, There is no mm. fine print. Like, forget there's no fine print. There's there's nothing even in the big print. Right. The United States basically capitulated to the Taliban and said, we will work on getting 5,000 of your prisoners released. We will promise to leave. We will not interfere in your domestic affairs of the country. And interestingly, you know, one of the things that they asked of the Taliban were just that the Taliban not allow groups to attack the United States or its allies. Well, you know, first of all, the Afghan forces really should be seen as the United States' allies. Those soldiers were the, were the Afghan, wow. yeah. were the Americans' allies. Right? And the Taliban during this time continued to attack Afghan national security forces and called them the enemy because mm. they were part of the government. But the, one of the other things that was in the document as you said, not a single mention of women, but okay. And they also asked the Taliban to please not issue passports to individuals who might seek to do harm to the United States. That's a very strange, <laughs> that's kind of... He sits down with a insurgent terrorist group and says, right. don't start issuing passports because the job of you know, who issues passports? That's an official government, right? So when I'm thinking about this document, I find it really problematic. 
and really troubling. And I wonder, you know, what did we think was going to happen? What were, what were our intentions in sitting down with the Taliban? I don't think it was a peace deal because we didn't ask them really for much of anything other than not to harm the United States. This document, it was negotiated during the Trump administration, right? It was like the last bit. And it's, it's kind of reminiscent of a lot of Trump's foreign policy things, like the one he wrote with the leader of North Korea. It was, it was also very like fluffy, like, oh, we're friends now, <laughs> like everything's going to be okay. So this kind of, you know, it, it lines up really well with his track record in foreign policy. But it, it's just the most basic of things. It, there's nothing to it. It's not really like intellectual. It's lazy, it seems like. All right, we don't want nothing. We just we just don't attack us and don't issue passports for folks who might attack us. Like what? That's it? Are you kidding? That was it. I mean, it was really, I thought, okay, here it is. The document's been released. Let me sit down with a huge cup of coffee and dive mm. into this. Because, you mm. know, as adults, we, we have contracts in our lives, right? right? This took like 10 minutes to read. Yeah, not a dive. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it was not a dive. Uh, I mean, my it was just it was it was a sham. I couldn't believe it took them this much time to get so little done. This is you know a interesting question, but will Taliban control once it you know becomes normalized? Will it be better somewhat than you know being in a state of perpetual war? I don't know, um, mm. and that's really the big question. That's been the big question on everyone's minds. We have. Folks in Afghanistan that we talk to, they don't know what life is going to look like. We've got some, you know, family members and then other contacts in um, in the country, and the unknown is really scary. So what you saw happening within the country as the Taliban were approaching the capital of Kabul, the country fell obviously very, very surprisingly quickly. So people were not anticipating this, and there's a lot that happened behind the scenes that we're just starting to piece together and. Mm -hmm. I think this will be an incredibly depressing documentary one day. But for now, what we did see happening in Kabul, for example, but as the Taliban were encroaching and people realized what was happening, you had people who were painting over beauty salon signs that had a woman's face on there, you know, advertising their services. You had people who people who just didn't go to work when they realized the Taliban were in town because, you know, these were women who just weren't sure what they were allowed to do, what they weren't allowed to do. You could see when journalists were reporting that the streets were rather empty because people were afraid to venture out into the streets. They just didn't know what were the rules this time. Are they the same? We don't really have a reason to believe that they're different. You know, a lot of people did feel that, okay, well, if the Taliban can at least bring peace, then that's something. And I think that just speaks to the desperation of the people right. there, of, you know, the 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 casualties, the trauma that people have suffered with decades of war. And that's at the hands of, you know, fighting between the Taliban, between the Afghan security forces. And then obviously, as you see in the news today, too, war is ugly. We've got civilian casualties at the hands of, of Americans as well. So again, like, like I said, the Afghan people have been between rocks and many hard places. And, and I'm hearing, you know, these themes like, you know, uh, uncertainty and desperation. And this is a difficult question, but how would you describe the atmosphere in Kabul? Is, is it a ghost town? And can you do things? What's it like? What are you hearing? So from what I'm hearing, initially, people were really refraining from being out and about on the streets because they were nervous. They also didn't know if there was going to be a lot of fighting and bloodshed. The banks had shut down. And so after this wave of panic and people kind of, you know, taking their money out of the banks and the banks have shut down, I'm hearing that the banks may have reopened 
in Kabul. In some other areas in the provinces, they have remained open. But I'm hearing that they may have already opened uh, with some limitations on how much people can withdraw. I think that some people have, have gone back to work. There are some people who are just laying low. There have been people who are desperately trying to figure out how to get to the airport. They're looking at a ticking clock and, you know, they're just watching the minutes pass by. They know the deadline just as well as the rest of the world does. And, you know, we've got family members who have tried to get to the airport a couple of times and they've just been turned away by the swarms of people. Right. And so, you know, it's really hard to say that the Afghan people are welcoming the Taliban when you see what's happening at the airport. And you see how desperately people are looking to flee the country. And it's not like folks want to leave their country, you know, their country and their home. I, I cannot imagine what that sense of panic and desperation must be like, where you can only, you know, take whatever you can put in your pockets or put into, you know, a small suitcase. And you're uprooting yourself because of something so scary. Yeah, these are family members who have lived there for years. We haven't seen them. My husband hasn't seen his family members in a while. Um, in decades. I have not seen, you know, this cousin of mine that, that I have there. I haven't seen these individuals and, and we have not heard from them because they have not been trying to leave the country. Right. They were living there. That was their home. That is their home. Exactly. But something fundamentally has changed. The ground has shifted under their feet and now they're looking at their children. They're looking at the work they've been engaged in in the past, you know, year or two years and wondering, what does this new Afghanistan mean for them? What does it offer to their children, if anything? So I've been hearing reports as far as like life changes. Men are unsure if they should shave their beards. Some of the younger folks are nervous about wearing headphones. Like you're saying, women are nervous about going out to a shop. They don't want to send their daughters. What? <laughs> what? And so there's there's no like clear-cut rule or rules about how life is to be. How do people function? They tread really carefully, mm. you know, and that's, I mean, that's what a lot of people are doing. On the flip side, you have a lot of people who are being extremely bold, extraordinarily mm. courageous. And at this time, I mean, still getting out there on what is Afghanistan's National Independence Day mm. and marching through the streets with what was then the Taliban wanted to call that the old flag. And, you know, in other parts of the country, we've heard that people who continue to raise that flag, I've seen one at least report of a person, a young boy actually, who was killed by the Taliban for raising that flag. You know, and I, I'm seeing pictures of women who are standing in the streets and protesting and demanding their rights. And they're doing this just feet away from Taliban fighters with guns on their shoulders. And I just, it's, it's, it's a really humbling courage to look at. Yeah, that that's that's incredible. And we're we're hearing the Taliban say their government is going to be led by Islamic values, right? And and neighboring countries are also heavily influenced by Islam, but in some of those countries we see women participating in daily life. Uh women in Saudi Arabia, they drive. In Pakistan, they've had a female prime minister. There's women in parliament in Iran. 49% of their labor force is made up of women. Are these things we could potentially see in Afghanistan? Well, women were driving in Afghanistan. I mean, I think they were driving before they were driving in Saudi Arabia. So, oh wow, okay. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at Saudi Arabia as a place where we want to model our mm. behavior on them. I mean, I think that, unfortunately, I think the United States has been rather 
gentle on Saudi Arabia because of our political allyship. Yeah. And, you know, the same with Pakistan as well, because these countries obviously have some ties to what's happening in Afghanistan right now. And specifically with Pakistan, we're looking at a lot of overlap and a lot of movement across that border. So I think that, you know, what they allow, what, what people kind of associate with the Taliban is very specific. They kind of inflict this level of religiosity and this, you know, twisting of laws. Let's remember that Afghanistan before August 15th was an Islamic country, right? And so the vast majority of people, just a tiny, tiny fraction of people were identifying as as non-Muslim. It was an Islamic country. And so they're coming in and trying to transform it into something which is is not really, it is not like the gold standard. It really isn't. And like you said, you can look at other countries in the world where they are predominantly or overwhelmingly Muslim countries. And this is not the existence of, of what people are, are, especially women, are living. Yeah, I see there's a spectrum, right, of intensity to upholding Sharia law. How does Afghanistan fall into the most conservative side of the spectrum compared to, you know, other countries that are a little bit more liberal? Why do they choose that? like more conservative reading? I think that's really hard to say because even within Afghanistan, there's a lot of diversity in terms of, you know, how conservative people are or how Mm -hmm. liberal they may be. In the cities, we've seen lots of different things happening. You know, the the way that women are, I mean, I hate to use um, clothing as a measure of, you know, religious freedom or liberation, but just the ideas of what women can or cannot choose to wear is very different in the cities compared to in some other areas. You know, what proportion of women are engaged in the workforce really varies depending on which part of the country you're looking at and and, and if it's rural or if it is a more urban setting. Now, that being said, we're also looking at a country that has been in a state of conflict. And I think one of the first casualties of war, of conflict, is women's rights, because it just falls to the bottom in, in terms of priorities. So if you're looking at people who are just, you know, literally running for safety from rockets during the high points of of war, we're not going to be advancing women's rights. If you're looking at a country that is, you know, struggling to come out of really harsh doctrines, then women's rights is going to be a struggle, right? We've got to like move it inch by inch. So I think that Afghanistan really honestly needs a longer period of true peace in order for women's rights to be able to advance to the point where it will be their natural fit, where it will represent what the Afghan people inherently want for themselves, what Afghan women inherently want for themselves, mm-hmm. that it will not be imposed uh, or measured by some kind of you know, foreign metric. And that's what can only happen in a place where basic human rights are guaranteed, where people can speak freely, can get an education, can have some access to healthcare, and just to be allowed to make some of their own very basic choices, then we'll see where they go. Is anyone happy that the U.S. is leaving? I think that, you know, there are a couple problems with the United States' presence in Afghanistan, admittedly. Mm. Mm. While a lot of good happened, I think that you can see, number one, there were casualties. And civilian casualties, they hurt a lot. It hurts people's impression. It leaves a lasting impression. And I think the Taliban use that a lot. They they use that as part of their messaging and part of you know what their battle cry was. And then again, the corruption. So you've got 
tons of money, right? And that's the the talking point here in the United States now is we have spent so much money in Afghanistan nation, we can't be nation builders. Well, we didn't really spend that money in Afghanistan, right? The vast majority of those dollars went into Afghanistan through the pockets of US contractors, right. of military companies, of defense contractors. I mean, all of this, there was a chain of it, right? And you've got a lot of great journalists who have documented that a good chunk of that money also went to the Taliban to pay off bribes so that they could get mm. some of their work done and do things. And so to talk about the investment of money in Afghanistan, we also truly fed this culture of corruption from the top. And that does not help, right? If you're really looking, if you're really looking to build a nation, you start from the ground up. You don't let money kind of, you know, trickle through the top layers and then just hope that those people will do something good with it when the vast majority of it ends up in their own pockets anyway. Right. And what do you believe the U.S. owes the people and, and the nation of Afghanistan? I think we need to be honest, first mm. of all. You know, I think it really hurts people when they're kind of, you know, just fed narratives that don't make any sense. You know, we've talked about how this deal was struck under Trump and and now we've got this catastrophe unfolding under a different president. And it is truly, it is it has been so mismanaged. And that's really harmful. And I think that we need to be aware of it. We need to be we need to acknowledge it and make space for it to be able to say this was harm. This was harm that was caused by the United States' decisions to withdraw its military almost overnight, to not really hold the Taliban to any kind of conditions, to just say, well, we're just going to withdraw by this deadline, and we don't really need you to tell us what you're going to look like, or if you're going to honor that there is some kind of structure of government, or we're just going to tell you that there should be, you know, you should be inclusive, as if these are like workplace buzzwords that they're going to understand, right? And I feel like it's it was like a lost opportunity, you know? It was because you had people willing to come to the table. They were at the table, right? They were there at the table, they're being down, but you just didn't have people who were there in earnest, especially on the part of the Taliban from what we could see. I mean, they were there and I've, I've talked about them like you invite people to a five-star hotel and offer them free food. Yeah, oh, sure. They're going to be they're in gonna there. They're going to show up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do they actually want to listen to the presentations? You know, I, I don't think so. I think right. this was all, it was all a facade. And you're working directly to help friends and family and others get out of Afghanistan. Can you talk about what that is like? It's really hard. I've been thinking about it. I have lists of of family, some of my own family members, my husband's family members, extended people that we kind of know, and then people who have come to me through these networks of advocates. And so I've got lists of people within the journalism field, within um, you know the arts, people who were very vocal, people who were just vital to making things happen in the country. And obviously I won't say very specifically what they were doing because, um, sure. because of the situation, but now I'm holding these lists and it, you know, every one of us has these lists. I'm not the only one. I have a, I have a tiny, tiny fraction, I'm sure. Well, but we feel really, really responsible, right? And so how do I, what do I do with these lists? How many doors have I knocked on? How many people have I tried to talk to? You know, just trying to phrase things the right way, trying to get the right person's attention and then watching the news and wondering, oh my God, am I sending people, what if I tell them that maybe there's hope and they go to the airport right. and then 
they're hurt there, right? It's become one of the most dangerous places. What if their names end up in the hands of the Taliban? You know, where I'm seeing headlines that just make my heart break. Like, are we just handing over names? And, you know, it's hard not to think of other times in history where we have had lists of names and these right. are the people wow. that we should be saving. So it's, it's a responsibility. It's heavy. And, you know, whatever happens after August 31st, I think there's still be, I hope there will continue to be some efforts because I'm not going to delete these names off of, you know, my own personal computer because mm. they're rather sacred to me at this moment. What can we do as citizens to help support refugees and support their journey and to make them feel welcome? What can we do as far as people power to put pressure on government? How can we help you? Well, first is if we don't create refugees, we're all in a better place, right? And so if there can be any, you know, ongoing pressure on the Taliban to to make Afghanistan safe. That's really when you see the protests that have been going on around the world, Afghans are really asking for people to let Afghanistan be a safe homeland so that people don't have to go running with one little bag of belongings and their children in their arms. Now we've got thousands upon thousands of people who have arrived here who are landing in other countries. And so, you know, what can we do here? I think one is to take a look at our at our local governance and our local organizations and just make sure that, that those entities have some kind of flow. It's honestly been in crisis mode here right now because there's been a bit of, as we say, they are building the plane as they fly it. Nobody was planning on receiving this many individuals at sure, right. this short amount of time. And so processing, where do they go? Who's in charge? Which agency is in charge? It is like an alphabet soup over there. Right. And and then there are people who have been collecting donations just you know from the jump. And where are those donations going? They can't go into certain facilities because there is a process and they have not gone through the process. So I've been telling people, you know, and there's been so many people who want to help, which is amazing. And that's what I'm trying to focus on is the good. People who have wanted to donate, I'm asking people to just look locally, find organizations that have been on the ground doing this kind of work. Because, you know, I was talking to a friend slash relative who's part of USAID, and she said she's been working in disasters for a really long time. And just people dropping off stuff actually creates more work because they have to sift through it, sort it out, figure out what can be used, what can't be used, and then how to get it to the right people. So at this time, honestly, like find money donations work best through trusted organizations that are involved at the ground level. We've tried to keep a list of some of them on afghanamericans.org, which is the Afghan American Foundation that I'm a board member of. And so it's about supporting them, uh, finding out who's doing the work. And then once people are landing, these are folks who are going to need to learn English for some of them. Um, some right. come over with language skills already. They may need help getting their kids registered into schools, and that's a lot to figure out. They may need housing because this is this is a lot of people. They may need um, help just getting driven around from one place to another. I know there are some organizations that are just organizing rides for people from the airport to wherever they're going after wow. that, after they come out of processing. There's, there's all these steps and you don't really think about it. Yeah, we don't really think about, you know, what the process is, but they, they land, they move from here to there, they get processed, you know, they're doing COVID screenings and all that kind sure. of great stuff. 
And then from there, they go into, you know, another phase and, and then get sorted out by, you know, their status and who's what. And, and, and so there is a really long and involved process that I think we do have to be a bit patient with and just help support it as much as possible. I like to end these interviews asking the guests something that they're hopeful about, something that they're hopeful for. Is, is there something, you know, even in, in the heaviness of the situation and, you know, the intense responsibilities that you're bearing right now, what's something that makes you hopeful? I'm hopeful because I see, I see my neighbors stepping up. I see my friends stepping up, my colleagues, people that I've known, you know, just years back from pediatricians that I've worked with to just people in my neighborhood, um, to people who have read my novels and are reaching out and asking me, you know, people I bumped into in a bookstore are emailing saying, how can I help? What can I do? And that is amazing. And that is what will, that is what will prevent us from just losing our humanity completely. Um, and I think that, you know, in this moment, the world is paying attention. I really hope that we can be wise enough to learn from the mistakes of the past, to be honest about it, acknowledge them, and then find ways to provide some accountability and not turn our backs. Because one thing that we should know from history is turning our backs on Afghanistan doesn't fare well. Right. And it's afghanamericans.org, right? Afghanamericans.org. Yes, we're a nonprofit uh, foundation. We are promoting civic engagement for the Afghan-American community and advocacy. And we have sort of become, you know, a hub where we're trying to connect the dots, empower local communities, find some resources for folks, make connections between, for example, translators and the needs at the airport. Um, so there's a lot that's happening just in terms of everyone is coming over, including some young people who are coming along, um, coming over without their families who are unaccompanied. So there are fires everywhere, and we're trying to just empower everyone to be able to do their part to help. Really, really, truly incredible work, Nadia. You're a hero. Thank you so much for coming to uh, speak with us today at the Dell. I'm among heroes, so I appreciate the chance to talk about this and just grateful to be to be in this conversation with you. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening in to episode one of season four. To learn more about the important work that Nadia is doing, please visit afghanamericans.org. I also encourage you to please like, follow, and subscribe to our podcast. You can find us by searching The Delph Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Happy Labor Day. I'll see you next Sunday. This is The Delph.